Today's passage is John 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. This week's passage is, I admit, not technically a parable, but a metaphor. Like a parable, it uses familiar and, in this case, agricultural imagery to illustrate a principle or convey meaning, but without the hypothetical fictional story. You've probably noticed over the first three parables in this sermon series that I've front-loaded those with a particular theme revolving around God's kingdom and our place in it. That's been very intentional, and we're digging into this not-quite-parable because it uniquely complements where we've gone so far in several ways, but especially in that it exposes a deep and dangerous bias that every single one of us carry as 21st century Americans. Now, I'm going to pull the band-aid of that assumption off very quickly, and then we will unpack that, unpack it through the rest of the sermon. The bias that we bring to text, like this one especially, is this, Western individualism. Western individualism is simply the air we breathe as 21st century Americans, and that air is this assumption, that I achieve my own identity, my, where you get your dignity, value, and worth. The gospel says we don't achieve, we receive our identity from Jesus, who achieved our dignity, value, and worth through his death and resurrection. Now, while that may sound a little like a distinction without a difference, It can significantly shape the lens that we bring to God's word, even if we are aware of it. So if you read today's passage prior to starting the sermon, which you should have done, 
You likely read all of the second person pronouns here as singular, as you, like referring to you as an individual. But every single you in this passage, without exception, is plural. Or y'all, as I grew up saying in the Midwest. This alone has massive implications for how we read this text. For example, if the you is singular, then y'all likely see it as a teaching about our personal relationship with Jesus. And that wouldn't be wrong. It would just be so incomplete that once you trace it down to its ultimate implications, you would find yourself at a very different destination than the one Jesus is teaching about here. So yes, it absolutely is about our personal relationship with Jesus, but not only or even primarily about that. Now, I'll be honest, a big part of me wants to tell you, don't worry, that is such an easy mistake to make because I preached this passage shortly after becoming a pastor, and that was primarily where I took it too. So I'm sympathetic, believe me. But the reality is, we should actually be more worried because of how easy of a mistake that is to make. Here's how we avoid that mistake and what John 15 is going to help us so much more clearly see. We can never do the work of interpreting a text without letting the text interpret you. In other words, what I would encourage you with is to let it interrogate your faith, to expose and separate it from the cultural lens that is shaped far more by modern Western values of individual autonomy, independence, and self-sufficiency, so that you don't see God's word through that distorted lens. If you do that, you're not just going to get more out of it. You will hopefully also see the rest of the Bible very differently and in really good ways. So let's jump in. First of all, let me just say there's a lot here. (laughs) And, and it all intricately ebbs and flows like a complex tapestry of interwoven threads to be traced back and forth throughout each part and parcel of this passage. Frankly, the more you reread this section of John's gospel, the more you will notice that complexity and the more you'll struggle to wrap your brain around all the depth and beauty it is articulating. This passage could easily take three sermons to cover and cutting content from the sermon hurt my soul even more than usual. So just know that we're going to skip over a lot of worthwhile stuff in order to focus on the main point, which is encapsulated in verses four through five, where Jesus says this. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This word abide more literally translated means remain, but we use its synonym abide because it has the connotation of, quote, actively work to stay engaged rather than the more passive don't do anything to leave tone that remain carries with it. For the disciples in that moment who were physically sitting in the same room with Jesus while he's teaching, they would have been like, check, and understood it to mean don't leave your rabbi, but continue to stay with me wherever I lead. But it's helpful to know that this also takes place in the middle of what is referred to as the, quote, farewell discourse, where Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for his leaving them by going somewhere they can't follow. In other words, his death, resurrection, and ascending to heaven, right? Yet it's clearly important to Jesus and something he still says is possible after he leaves them because he uses the word abide 11 times in the first 10 verses. (laughs) And then later, 
After Jesus was, Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, the disciples would have thought back to this moment that Jesus made such a big deal of and asked one another, okay, so, so what does that mean now? <laughs> How do we buy, abide in the true vine in Jesus between his ascension and when he promises to return? He's not physically here. Now, at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, come on, Brad, let's get to the point. The answer's clear. Jesus may not be physically present among us, but he is spiritually within each of us through the Holy Spirit. The answer is, of course, we abide in the true vine by praying and reading his word. Okay, you've probably heard that sermon before. And yes, that is absolutely true. That is the sermon that I preached that I was referring to earlier. In fact, prayer is specifically mentioned multiple times here, and the Holy Spirit's connection to that bookends John 15 and passages immediately before in John 14, 15 through 21, and shortly after this passage in John 16, 5 through 15. So yes and amen. However, there are a few uh, complications with that interpretation. First of all, vine or vineyard imagery <clears throat> is sprinkled throughout all of scripture. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, including other parables of Jesus that we're going to get to in the sermon series, it's everywhere. <clears throat> to my knowledge, this is the only time that this imagery is not used to represent Israel, God's covenant people. Also, it is never used to re represent, that, to do so in that way as, as a way of like representing individual Jews, i.e. persons, right? Nor even Jewish community as the sum of individuals in some kind of a subgroup or people in general. Rather, it exclusively represents the singular definite entity that is the covenant people of God, the covenant people of God. Not a covenant people of God, the covenant people of God. That includes all individuals therein, but it cannot represent a smaller organic collection of people like a Bible study, for example. That's part of it, but that's not what's in the scope here. We know this because the 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Shortly after this farewell discourse, Jesus will fulfill all of the Old Testament covenants that God made with his people Israel and then reconstitute his people under the new covenant that is signed and sealed by Jesus' death and resurrection. God's new covenant people is the church and his death and resurrection so fully identifies and unites himself with his covenant people that Jesus is spiritually indistinguishable from it, from his church. This is why the church is referred to as both the bride and body of Christ and exactly what he is trying to teach the disciples when he co-ops this familiar vine imagery to make the statement that he is the true vine. Here's why I'm making such a big deal out of this. Pure individualists would read this as support for the belief that you can have Jesus in your heart and a Bible in your hand and consider yourself to be faithfully following Jesus. And they'd be wrong. Very, very wrong. But don't take my word for it. According to Jesus in verse six, those are branches that wither and die and are then gathered up in a pile to be burned. There are so many reasons that this is the case, and I don't want to get bogged down here. So if you're at the table, and then you are, by definition, at least not living that way, even if you think it's biblically possible, right? 
you're part of a church, of course. But while few, if any of us, are pure individualists, my bet is that a lot of us are, let's call it, humble individualists. And I put humble in scare quotes because most anyone still intrinsically senses a need for community and genuinely appreciates hospitality. It's why you're here. But are also still compromised by a Western individualism that thinks being in any form of community with Christians will qualify. In other words, humble individualists assume a reduced definition of the church that means either having Christian friends or being in a group of people that do Christian things. Or, shudder, uh, online Christian community. And while that is obviously much closer to the, the true vine than pure individualism, it ignores the historical breadth and redemptive depth of what is encompassed in Jesus' short statement, I am the true vine. Specifically and especially, the 12 disciples are not just a group of people who do Christian things. Their representation here of and as God's new covenant people is every bit the formal institution that Israel was, just with a New Testament in addition to the old, sacraments to replace temple sacrifices, and ordained elders and deacons in lieu of priests and Levites. The whole shebang, which is a Hebrew word, meaning you don't get to pick and choose how you define church like a buffet. That was a joke. I'm kidding, but the point still stands. Frankly, either of those individualist definitions would be so alien, so unfathomable, and so distressing to the early church that they'd almost see it as an they'd almost certainly see it as an idolatry needing to be repented of. It's sin. (sighs) If you want to join in for the sermon discussion that we do on Sunday mornings, I'd be happy to walk through the many other places in Scripture that back up that rather jarring claim. But I say all of this now to hammer home how fundamentally incompatible our Western individualism is with a biblical definition of what it means to be a Christian in the first place. In other words, There is no meaningful way or biblical way to abide in Christ spiritually that does not also include abiding in the physical body of Christ that is the church. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the community. Now, take that realization back to our initial answer regarding what it means to abide in Jesus. Seen through the lens that the true vine is both Jesus via our spiritual union with him and, his, and in and through his word and his body via the physical community that is the church. The aforementioned context of the Holy Spirit empowering our p- prayers doesn't primarily apply or at least initially apply to us as individuals but to all of us together as the worshiping church. The institutional church is the true vine apart from which we will not bear fruit. Indeed, Jesus says in verse five that apart from him, so therefore apart from his church, we can do nothing. All that said, I know that even as I'm saying this, you probably have and I wanna anticipate a question or a concern that this likely raises for a church that is presently unable to physically gather as the body of Christ in all the ways I just got done describing. First of all, Jesus says in verse 11 that he tells the disciples and us all this because he wants his joy to be in us and that our, quote, joy may be full. So if you're feeling less than full of joy, 
It is not only due to the day-to-day stress of the pandemic. It is also because none of us are currently able to fully abide in the body of Christ in all the ways that nourish our souls. If you are full of joy right now, and you're not feeling what I'm talking about, please email me me because there may be something very, very wrong in your heart and or just you just have very low standards for joy, in which case I want to make you a cocktail and we will talk about that. You see, we branches are, are making do with the connection to the true vine that we do have, but this is neither the way it's supposed to be nor is it sustainable in the long term. It is for that reason that I want to put on your radar now that there may be a point in the next several months when our legitimate biblical and universal human need to physically gather within and as the body of Christ may grow to be greater than the risk of COVID. We're not there yet, and if you know me at all, I will never ask us to gather in such a way or at a time when it would not be at least reasonably safe to bring my own family or invite my neighbors, but we all need to expect that there may be a tipping point in the vaccine distribution where not everyone has gotten one but enough of us have that our mental and spiritual health needs for relaunching worship services just outpace that risk. Frankly, I have zero clue how to discern that tipping point right now, okay? I say all this now in order to not waste the opportunity that this otherwise miserable pandemic presents us with, which is the opportunity to see our Christian faith through a more biblical and less individualist lens than not only theologically understands, but also experientially appreciates, communally appreciates the inseparability of our personal relationship with Jesus from our communal relationship within his church. Another way of saying this is we cannot genuinely love Jesus, but dismiss dismiss his bride any more than you can be genuine friends with someone and dismiss their spouse. Bluntly, if we want to grow closer to Jesus, we must grow in our love for his church. The disconnection, the disembodiment, and yes, even the depression that we are experiencing as a result of this pandemic is all both a a severe mercy that gives us a foretaste of of where even humble individual will lead us eventually, because that is, it accelerated. We're experiencing that right now. But it's also a pruning that Jesus is allowing to help us bear more fruit once we, as branches connected to the true vine, are more fully reconnected to the body of Christ. Is my deepest hope and prayer that once our body is fully embodied again, we will experience a multiplication of the fruit that Jesus describes here as his joy and our love for one another. So what what do you do with this now? I know it's great to, to look forward to, and I hope that's hopeful, um, but, but how does this actually help us in this moment too? Well, first of all, avail yourself of any and every opportunity to connect your branch to the particular length or span of the true vine that is the table. We need every bit we can. Join us for our prayer service on Sunday mornings. Reach out to Katie to get connected to a cohort. Volunteer to serve alongside others through our partnership with Community Food Share. And jump into whatever you can, wherever you can. The more you do, the more you will experience the fruit bearing nourishment of Jesus. That's, he will work in extraordinary ways through that. Second, I know I've been pretty hyper-focused on dismantling this Western individualism, but there are 
absolutely implications for individual Christians, right? One of the reasons we are using the daily prayer project for our Sunday morning liturgy is intentionally because we're doing so together as Jesus' body once per week empowers everybody to continue doing it on their own throughout the week. Too often, we try to jumpstart or revitalize our prayer life or Bible reading by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. But one of the implications of John 15 is that we were never meant to do that on our own. It's actually through and within our church community that we learn, that we lean on others or ask for encouragement. Being inspired by others who persevere despite greater hurdles to prayer or benefiting from the wisdom of those who have been in our shoes and yet bear fruit, all these things are things we need, myself included. If that's something you want help with, then join us at 10 a.m. via Zoom and even mention it during the breakouts afterward because I have no doubt you'll hear empathy and or wisdom from anyone else who's there. We've all been, this is all of us, right? Lastly, I want you to supplement everything I'm saying today with the last three weeks worth of sermons and parables. This is meant to complement what we've already covered there. So remember Jesus' parable of the sower that encourages us to receive our identity through his word and that even if it bounces off of our hard hearts, the invitation only expires when we do. Remember the parables of the growing seed and the mustard seed, which remind us that our efforts are not in vain and that God is the one who produces fruit even if we don't see it happen as fast or as in the ways that we expect. And remember the parable of the two builders that the pr- and the promise that an identity, a dignity, value, and worth that is built on the person and work of Jesus can, can weather any storm. So in light of all of that, Rejoice in hope, love one another, and rest in the confidence that as Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You're not doing this on your own, either horizontally, in and among the body of Christ that is the church, And you're also not doing this on your own or on your own power apart from Jesus. It is he who is working in you, who is sustaining you, and it is in and through and because you are part of a church that he is most ordinarily making that happen. Rejoice in that comfort, in that freedom, that everything that you might need on a deep existential communal level is accomplished and set up and served to you on a silver platter in and through what Jesus has done. And it is all and only because of who he is and his heart that loves you and wants to make a big stink out of how much he cares for you and is committed to you. That's the gospel. Amen.